Good evening, everyone. Let's stand on our feet. I am going to read out of John chapter 17, and I'm going to flip over to Philippians chapter 2. So this is John 17, verse 22. Jesus praying, The glory which you have given to me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you've given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. Philippians 2, verse 3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Don't merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus who although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Let's pray. We thank you, God, that your word is living and active, and that it pierces and it cuts and it reveals and it transforms. And we ask that your word will proceed forth from your mouth tonight, and that Holy Spirit, you will come and guide us into the truth, and you'll make known to us the many more things that Jesus desires us to know. You won't speak on your own initiative, but the words you receive from Jesus, you make known to us. And so we humble ourselves to receive the words that you would want to offer in this place tonight. God, I humble myself before you, confess my dependence, 
in need of you. That you would increase in this time. That your presence would we'd become more aware of it. That the consciousness of your kingdom would arise in our hearts in this time. That you would saturate us, God, in your living truth that has the power to transform us into your likeness. So do just that, we ask, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Those are the two scripture passages, John 17, Philippians 2. Was the text I felt the Lord gave me. That was about all He gave me. But we did sing those songs. I didn't tell the worship team that. So there's confirmation in the house of God tonight. I spent a lot of time in prayer with the Lord this week, and particularly this morning, was meditating on the concept of God's glory. And so I want to talk about God's glory tonight, and then I want to link that to the humility of Jesus, and the cross of Jesus. So let's go on a journey of seeing how those two things are connected. Uh, God's glory is a fascinating topic. If you want to just get deeply enamored with God, go on a study of the scriptures and just read the experiences or the accounts of when God's glory uh, shows up on the scene. It's quite profound it's transformative. Uh, you know, some of the highlight reels would be Moses on the mountain. God says, I'm going to hide you in the cleft of the rock. You can't gaze upon me with your face, but I'm going to cause, I'm going to show you my glory. I'm going to cause all my goodness to pass before you. This profound, holy experience we see when Solomon is dedicating the temple in Israel he prays this long prayer it's, uh, in Chronicles and Kings. There's two different accounts of this. But it says that the Shekinah actually filled the temple in this moment of consecration. And the priest fell on their faces. They, couldn't, they were incapacitated and unable to minister because the weight of God's glory. So we see these words Shekinah. Uh, another word in the Hebrew for the God's glory is the Kabod, K-A-B-O-D, which is this weighty presence. Uh, I mean, how many of you have experienced the kabod of God's presence before where it rests upon you in this tangible way that there's a weight to it? It's light, but it's heavy. Uh, I was experiencing God's kabod in this place last week. I, I couldn't leave here for quite a long time after service because his glory was in this place. And uh, we, we could go on and on. David recognizes the ark of God's presence, which is where the glory dwelt with Israel. There was the time when David, the priest, did it the wrong way. They touched the ark, and so the ark stayed outside of the city in a man's house, and that house was blessed because God's manifest presence was upon it to the point that David got kind of jealous of it. And he's like, it's time to bring it into Jerusalem 
there's something about God's glory, his manifest presence. And you can see the whole narrative, particularly of the Old Testament, is Israel's relationship with the ark, which was this physical representation of God's glory or his manifest presence or this weighty sense of God's nearness or his imminence. It's this, it's hard, it's mysterious, but it's all throughout the scriptures, this idea of God's glory. And it says in Hebrews that Jesus became the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his nature. And Jesus then prays this prayer in John 17, which I think is a good one to study. So I have a lot of faith Jesus gets his prayers answered. And he probably prays according to the will of God. That's just a guess. And he prays something quite remarkable that the glory which God had given him He says that he has given to us. (laughs) And if you think he was just making that up, he then just continues, Father, I desire that they would be with me so that they could see my glory. I think sometimes we almost mix it up on who wants to see who more. It's, It's God's desire that we would be a people that know his glory. And God is glorious. <laughs> to know God is to behold his glory because everything he is is resplendent and majestic and altogether lovely and glorious. So Jesus prays that we as his people would actually receive his glory. You know, there's kind of this adage in the church, you know, God won't give his glory to another. We're not another. He gives us his glory so we can be one with him. And there is this fear of the Lord that would say, I don't want to take your glory and manipulate your glory for my own gain. That's true. That's holy. That's that's true humility. But... You have to be able to, you have to receive his glory in the first place to even be able to manipulate it or twist it or use it for your own purposes. And I often find that people who will say something like, God won't give his glory to another, have never actually received his glory. They don't know his glory. So we can get sometimes these religious games in our head that try to convince why God doesn't really want us to know the power and the weight and the glory of who he is. But it's right here in the Bible that he does. So we're going to take that for granted. We're just going to trust that Jesus is praying something that's true. And then let's talk about how would we as people learn to enter in and have this tangible relationship with the kabod of God. Because In the Old Covenant, the glory dwelt where? In the tabernacle. And where in the tabernacle? In the Holy of Holies. And where in the Holy of Holies? The Ark of the Covenant. And where in the Ark of the Covenant? The mercy seat. We're going to get into this. So 
there's this temple. For those of you that maybe aren't familiar, it had an outer court, then it had an inner court. Then you entered into the actual temple, and there was an inner sanctuary, and then there was the, the, the holy place, then there was the holy of holies, and there was a veil between the holy place and the holy of holies. And there's all these different aspects of worship that they would uh, perform as the priest. But when they got into the Holy of Holies, which where the high priest could only go once a year, they'd tie a rope around him because there was fear. One of God's name was the fear of Israel because they knew that if they walked into the glory in an inappropriate manner, it would kill a man. So they put a rope upon the high priest so that if he fell dead, they'd be able to drag him out and he wouldn't be stuck in that place because there was, this wasn't just an idea or a concept. This was a living reality that there was a God who dwelt like a fire by night and a cloud by day. He was glorious, glorious. And, you know, to the point that Israel was afraid to climb the mountain, Moses was this foreshadowing of a new covenant relationship and that he actually ascended this mountain of God's glory. Everyone else was afraid to go because they beheld the glory. They saw Moses and they were afraid of him because he would come out of the glory and his face would be shining, shining. They'd have to veil his face because they were terrified of his reflection of God's glory. So this is how real this relationship with God's glory was. In 2 Corinthians, we have a greater relationship with God's glory than what Moses had, so much greater that it says that Moses was fading away and it's not glorious compared to what we have in a new covenant reality, which means if we don't know his glory, there's something we're missing of what our inheritance is as the scripture's telling us, right? And so we as Christians can either look at the scripture and we can try to water it down to our experience to justify why our experience is what scripture says, or we can look at the scripture, become poor in spirit, hungry and thirsty for righteousness, and let God disciple our experience into the reality of what the scriptures are inviting us into. One of those takes humility. The other one coddles us, <laughs> We don't want to be coddled. You don't get coddled into the glory of Christ Jesus. You get crucified to the flesh. You humble yourself. And right, okay, I'm jumping ahead. But we are the temple of God as the new covenant believers. Right, we are the temple, which means there's a, a holy place and a holy of holies inside of us, which means that inside of our hearts as this new covenant temple that the glory of God, it says the spirit jealously desires the temple for which it is to dwell within. That's you and I. So God's manifest glory is searching for a resting place. He's searching for a home. He's longing to make his home inside of your heart. So let's go back to old covenant here. God's throne was where? The mercy seat. What is the mercy seat? Does anybody know? It was these angel wings above the ark that simply created space. That's where God dwelt. <laughs> I think we should ponder the mercy seat because it's quite, it's quite profound. Every other king... Every other kingdom has a quite different throne than the space 
So the throne of God is this mercy seat of this holy space. And you and I have a mercy seat. We have a throne inside of our hearts. And it's a space. It's a sacred space. I think we could probably spend all night just pondering, why would God make his dwelling amongst men, the pinnacle of this whole temple worship structure, would be something so undefinable or uncontrollable, nothing that we could even just space. Just this space. When I think of this being God's throne, the place of his dominion, his leadership in, in our lives, it, it, it really reveals, it, it gives me a revelation of the meekness of God. It's not a domineering throne. It's not a place of coercion. It's not a place that demands submission and obedience. It's, 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 it's silent in a way. It's empty. It actually draws you in. It actually requires that you would behold and listen. The governing space of God in our lives, the throne that he wants to inhabit, is this holy of holy space. Where he leads us. This is where he led Israel from. Why I think that the mercy seat is profound is that it's very easy if we are not aware and living in this fear of the Lord, we can we could transgress the boundary. We could drown it out. Tozier says that every man in his heart has both a throne and a cross. And each one of us have a choice that we will either sit upon the throne and put God upon the cross, or we will put ourselves upon the cross and place God upon the throne. But the image we think of when we think throne is this golden seat with a scepter and a crown. But the mercy seat, it's just space. This is what I'm trying to get at. To go and sit upon a throne knowing that it's God's throne, that feels more, it almost feels like it would have to be egregious. It would have to be this very cognizant, conscious act that I am going to sit upon the throne of my life. But when you think of the mercy seat as something so meek as just this space, you realize that if we don't honor this space, if we don't honor this throne inside of us, that the Lord Jesus says, I come to make my home in you. And if we drown this space out with noise or activity, it's, I guess what I'm, it's very easy to transgress this space. And before we know it, we think, we think that we have such good 
motives in our over-busyness and our neglect of the word and our neglect of listening and our neglect of our time with the Lord and all these little things that we, we see them as little, just these little things, but we don't realize we're sitting upon his throne. We've transgressed the holy of holies. We've stepped to the place that we're not supposed to step into because we're not honoring the mercy seat. We're not honoring sanctified space. And the reality that if we are the temple of God, there is holy ground inside of us. Every man, every woman in our hearts, in the heart of hearts, we have both a throne and a cross. How many were blessed, you know, when Benji preached a couple weeks ago? Wasn't he just a wonderful teacher? He, he, taught, he, he taught on that verse and with Cain and Abel. He referenced it at one point, saying that sin creeps at the door. I think we fail to recognize sometimes how prevalent and how deep the propensity, the sin nature goes, that orients us to taking God's, what's God's for ours. This, it's creeping. Sin's creeping. And what seems so casual sometimes, like eating an apple, becomes catastrophic because we're blind. And what does the prince of this world who blinds the hearts of the unbelieving, what does he want to blind us to more than anything? The glory of God. He doesn't want us to see him. All throughout the Old Covenant, there's this, this rhythm, essentially, that God is revealing his glory to Israel. And then as God's glory is manifesting in Israel, sin creeps within Israel, and they essentially take it for granted, and they make all these micro steps away from him until they end up back in captivity. When they get back in captivity, they start crying out for a deliverer. God brings deliverance, restores the ark of the presence to Israel, his presence comes back, and then the microabrasions away. Fractures, 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 fractures. Because sin is creeping at the door. Right? And it's not just like a, you know, it's Tuesday. I feel like sitting on God's throne today. It's never like that. But if we don't understand that the resting place of the glory is the mercy seat, Which requires a space of beholding, you know, and if you study all the worship of the old covenant, you know, there's thanksgiving, there's praise, there's the fire on the altar, there's the golden menorah, the lampstand that is burning, the prayers of the people, there's the showbread, there's the, the wine, there's these acts of worship, but it gets you to the place where the height of the place of worship is when you come before Yahweh, Jesus, the, the lamb that was slain who's alive, and you, you behold him.
and you posture yourself to be led by the meek one. I think as much as we talk about this inside, upside down kingdom, we forget that God really is meek. He leads from a mercy seat. Why doesn't he do it more overt? Why doesn't he supply miracle and mystery and power? Why doesn't he command a following? Because he's meek. He doesn't want slaves. He wants free people. He wants to be pursued. He wants to be listened to because we want to, not because we have to, not because we're afraid of what would happen. It's a mercy seat. Silence, space. I don't think it's an accident that God didn't speak to Moses until he saw that Moses turned and approached the burning bush. And I don't think that burning bush looked, I think it just looked like a burning bush. Just a bush on fire. But Moses saw it. He approached it. Then God spoke. He spoke when he saw that Moses turned and revered that space. What is the mercy seat in our lives? It's the altar of communion. It's intimacy. It's prayer. It's worship. It's the basics. It's time with him. Where we allow him to govern us from the mercy seat, which is why he speaks in a whisper. Why does God speak in a whisper? Because he's meek. He's not like other leaders. He's just different. So what is our remedy to the sin that creeps at the door? To the propensity you know, that makes us like the song, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the Lord I love. What, what is the remedy? There's only one remedy, and it is the cross. Which is why I think Tozer has such wisdom in, in, in articulating that every man has a throne and a cross. And there's really only one, two, two possibilities. We're either on the throne and God is on the cross, or we're on the throne. We're on the cross. God is on his throne. That's our remedy. That is why the cross is the greatest gift we will ever receive. In the radical cross, Tozer describes the cross, and he says that you know, we all have a cross from God because he loves us, but it's not Jesus' cross. Jesus' cross was made of two wooden slabs and three nails. That's not my cross. That's not your cross, most likely. But everyone has a cross, and some people's cross is full of gold and silver and 
diamonds and it shines and glistens and it incites the envy of people. Other people's crosses, he says, are made of feathers and from the outside they look like nothing and such a light burden, but they crucify nonetheless. Some people's crosses are made of lead and stone and they are heavy in themselves in a painful yoke. We can't compare our crosses. We just have to embrace our cross, thank God for our cross, and choose our cross daily. I've decided to follow you. And he says, you can't follow me and be my disciple unless you pick up your cross daily and follow me. The cross is the prerequisite for following. So if we want to follow him without a cross, it's actually not following. We're following an ideal of who we think Jesus is in our minds. We're following a fleshly incantation of what we think the Christ to be until we see the cross. That it's the cross before me, the world behind me, and I see Jesus ahead of me. And I'm following him because it's the cross. The cross is the greatest gift that God will ever give us because it liberates us. From the sin that creeps at the door, it crucifies the flesh. And, you, you know, we need it crucified. God doesn't want to coddle our sin. He doesn't want to massage it away. He doesn't want us to pat us on the back and say, it's, you know, it's, it's all good. Uh, he wants to crucify the flesh. And that flesh nature, that self nature, just really longs to get on that throne. It really longs to be the leader of our life. It really longs and for control. Control is the currency of the flesh. It just, it just yearns for control because the flesh is made in the image of its God. Think about that. Satan has no creative power. He just has manipulative power. He manipulates our creative power. God said, you'll surely die on the day you eat of the fruit. Satan comes to the ones made in the image of the creator, says, obey me. They obeyed him and gave birth to a sin nature that's made in the likeness of its father, Satan. This is why Jesus speaks so bluntly to the Pharisees and says, you have a father, and it's the devil. He's not speaking to their new creation identity, he's speaking to the flesh nature that wanted to crucify Jesus because the flesh will have it one way, me on the throne, Jesus on the cross. This is the war, and this is also what keeps us from the glory because God will not give his glory to another, and the flesh nature is an imposter that he does not know. He doesn't know the flesh. He doesn't know it. He crucifies it. Ruthlessly crucifies it. How can God crucify me and give me his glory? I don't know. That's wild. But sometimes we think we're being really kind and compassionate. And making all the excuses and justification for the flesh. That, that doesn't help anything. That just keeps us from beholding him. Because the flesh, if the flesh is allowed to operate in our lives, it will take the throne. And if the mercy seat is unclean in our lives, it's because the flesh is defiling the mercy seat. 
So we have a daily choice. Do I humble myself and embrace my cross? And I don't just mean tolerate your cross. There's this scene in The Passion of the Christ. I don't know if you've, you've seen it. I think about it often. And Jesus falls. And it's like there's this moment when he, it's like he embraces his cross. It's like that image has just been branded into me for years. And if you've seen that, there's that powerful scene that Mel Gibson, man, he's an interesting guy, but he's anointed. Where, where Mary runs to him. And he says, behold, I make all things new. Because Jesus knew that the cross came from the love of the Father. If we will empty ourselves and cling to our cross, not complain about our cross, but cling to our cross. If we will suffer well and count it pure joy for, the, for, for suffering for his name, it will, it will cling. If we will allow the cross to be our daily portion, we will decrease and it will create in us the humility to bend so that the mercy seed inside of us can become sanctified. So that Shekinah Kabod, the glory that Jesus is longing for us to receive, can ascend into the sanctuary of God, which is your heart. Ichabod is my glory's departed. This this would happen in the Old Covenant when defilement would sweep over the land of Israel. In Ichabod, there would, the glory would leave. And the beautiful thing as a New Covenant believer is that goodness and mercy follows us all the days of our life. If we just turn, he's there. It doesn't actually take a long time to restore. It's like Christ is longing to reconcile us, right? This is the ministry of reconciliation, 2 Corinthians 4. It's as if Christ was making an appeal through us. Please be reconciled to God. He made him sin who knew no sin so you could become his righteousness. It's here. Reconciliation is here. But I think we drift into Ichabod because we get blinded by the prince of this world. And we don't realize that we start creeping into the mercy seat because there's no sanctified space in our lives. And we think that our prayer lives are just a matter of if we're going to have peace that day or not. It's not about peace that day. There's, that's a consequence of a daily rhythm of prayer. But what it's really about, a rhythm of prayer and worship and space for God is about who is sitting on the throne of your life. 
You cannot tell me that Yahweh is enthroned upon your life and that he has governing space and dominion over you, that you are submitted and obedient to the will of God if there is not space in your life that is strictly for him and him alone where you're receiving daily manna and daily bread and the whisper that is only heard and the silence, and the holiness, and the glory of the mercy seat. We're kidding ourselves. Like, we're kidding ourselves. This is why in Ephesus, it's such a, a firm rebuke to a church that was doing a lot of really good things. They were the, they were the crown jewel of the Mediterranean world. I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance, that you can't tolerate evil men. You put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not. You found them to be false, and you have perseverance, and you have endured for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you. You've left first love. Therefore, remember the place from where you've fallen. Repent and do what you did at first, or else I'm coming and I'm going to remove your lampstand from this place. Wow, that's not nice, Jesus. But that sounds, that sounds, that sounds too radical. That sounds so intense. I mean, that's not moderation. I'll get to that next week. You might not have a lampstand next week. What's Jesus getting to? He's, he's saying, you're doing all the right things. You're persevering. But my throne, right, it's a throne of love. This is what makes God so different from every other king is he doesn't rule with a rod of authority. He leads with tender love. That's the mercy seat. Why is it called the mercy seat? I don't entirely know. But God's first self-revelation to Israel was on the mountain with Moses when he said, I'm slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He reveals himself as gracious. He's a lover. He, he, he doesn't use fear. He doesn't use manipulation. He's not fighting for control. He's wanting your heart. He's wanting access to your heart. And you know, I found, I don't know if other people in this room can attest whether you're married or in any intimate relationship, but when my wife and I have intense fellowship, <laughs> we're both, we're both get, we both have this intense side that can come out, but whenever we work through those things, which, you know, usually takes a little bit of time, but thank God for 
how we love and Justin and Tisha Ross and all that other stuff that helps you shortcut the process, you know. But you get down through that, and then when you get to the tender place, like one word from my wife from a tender place will pierce my soul and cut me and do more than anything else could ever do. It's like, as much as we make it about the externals, it's like God leads from this very tender place. I think we get this bad rap on God in the old covenant that he's angry and how could he be? He has this wrath. But I actually take comfort I think it's profound that God would even disclose he feels anger because anger is a secondary emotion. And if God's revealing his anger and he's letting himself be messy in front of Israel, it's actually demonstrating he's in a love relationship with Israel because he's actually saying, I'm hurting. Because I used to be able to lead you with a whisper. Now you don't hear it. Now I have to woo you. Now I have to raise my voice. Now I have to boundary myself from you. Right? Boundaries aren't, aren't walls. They're not out of fear. Boundaries are for the sake of connection. Why does God boundary his glory? Because it's the only way that sometimes we can have to feel pain. It's this way of saying, I want you to come back to love. I want to lead you in tenderness. This is why in Hosea, the prostituted bride, he doesn't say, I'm, I'm exiling you to the wilderness to punish you. He says, I'm sending you to the wilderness so I can speak tenderly to you. Our God's a lover. He leads from a mercy seat of tender love. And his cry for your time is not some sort of carrot on a string or reward game that do this so that I can do this for you it's it's this longing that he could have your heart this is marvelous it's marvelous that God would so humble himself and confess his fondness toward us so openly that he would actually position himself in a way that he could be rejected and it would affect him. So I'm not trying to put a heavy yoke on you, but I'm trying to disclose that the subtle rejections, the, the no's that we give him in our busyness, in our hurried pace, and are sometimes just flat right, I just don't want to. It's moving us away 
from a reverence of the mercy seat. It's defiling it. God's calling us home. He's calling us to a garden. He's calling us to holy communion. He's calling us to heaven. He's calling us to heaven. This is eternal life. That they would know you. And how do we know him? We spend time with him. Just the two of us. The most valuable thing of each of our lives is our relationship with Jesus. It doesn't matter what you do. It does not matter how much money you make. It does not matter how, what anybody says about you. The only thing that you can really take with you that will matter is what you have built with Jesus Christ. We all have heard that statement, Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. But I would dare to go a step further and say that Christianity is not a relationship. It is a love affair. Between a God who is possessed with love for a people that have rejected him again and 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 again. But it's like he just sets his face like flint. It's like, I don't care. I will love you with everything I am, with all that I am, for all of your life. I am the Lord. I don't change. I will not repent of my decision to set my love on you. Everything that God does, he does as God. There are no half intentions or half resolutions or mediocrity or he finishes everything that he starts. When Jesus suffered on the cross, he suffered as God. He suffered more than any human has suffered. He suffered more than all the suffering that's in hell because when Jesus suffered, he suffered as God because everything God does, he does absolute. He is the absolute. And so when God loves, he loves you as God. He loves you like an all-consuming fire. He loves you 
as only God could love you. His yearning, his dream is that you would know him. That you would know him. That you would be found in him. That you would you would start to love him the same way that he loves you. We make this so complicated. This is the furious longing of God. So why does he lead us from a mercy seat? Because he creates space for us to enter in ourselves. For us to offer, for us to mature and to love him on his level. If we will choose a cross, we'll get his glory too. You don't lose anything when you give everything to Jesus. The only thing you lose is the selfish flesh nature that Satan manipulates to kill, still, and destroy your life through that's what you lose the only thing you lose is your insecurity your fear your restlessness your addiction your judgment once you've walked with him all you can really think about is what you've gained I really don't like being a mess like this. God's glory is here. And I sense that it's a simple act of repentance. That you can come right back in into first love and that he wants to just touch you. So I'm gonna read this one more time and then I'm just gonna open the altar.
I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you can't tolerate evil and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they're not and you found them to be false and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary but I have this against you You've left first love. Therefore, remember from where you've fallen and repent and do what you did at first. You can come forward if you want to come forward and step off the mercy seat tonight. And in Brace the cross. I just believe that the kabod, the shekinah, the glory of God wants to meet with us and, and, and touch us and awaken us. If you want to come, come. Come and humble yourself before the Lord. Come and empty yourself before the Lord. We love because He first loves. We give you the mercy seat. We yield and we empty and we bow and we acquiesce. We, we take a step back and we behold the one on the throne. for your glory God that as we turn as we confess as we confess Lord that we've we've forsaken the mercy seat that you wash us in your loving kindness Wash us in your blood, that you cleanse and purify and wash us with hyssop and we'll become white like snow. Jesus, the glory that you've received from the Father, you give to us and you, you give it freely. So release your glory in this place, God. And awaken love. Awaken love. Awaken love. Awaken love. Just awaken love, God, true love, first love. Love, God, that is derived from you and in you. And 
that your fire would touch our hearts, God, and our hearts would burn with your love, with your fire, with your glory, God, your kabod, Lord, your manifest presence. say yes to the cross have your way have your way have your way we step on the cross God we embrace the cross we relinquish the throne to you God we we let go of control we repent of fear Lord, we, we just cling, we cling to the cross and say, God, take the throne. God, take the throne. Come and lead us from the mercy seat, God. Come and govern our lives. temple. God, usher, fill, billow in, God, consecrate us. God, as we consecrate ourselves, let your glory inhabit, God, inhabit us, that we be a habitation of Shekinah glory. That we receive the inheritance of Christ. I thank you, God, that eyes would open that eyes would open to see the glorious one. Have your way. 